Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Does technological progress automatically translate into higher wages, better living standards, and widely shared prosperity? Or is it necessary to steer the development of technological improvement to ensure the benefits don't accrue to only the few? In a new book, two well-known economists argue the latter. I'm joined in this episode by one of the authors, Simon Johnson. Simon is the Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at MIT. He and Darren Asamalu are authors of the new book, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Simon is also the co-author with Jonathan Gruber of 2019's Jumpstarting America, now out in paperback. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Let me start uh, with a sentence or two from the uh, prologue. People understand that not everything promised by Bill Gates, Elon Musk, or even Steve Jobs will likely come to pass. But as a world, we have become infused by their techno-optimism. Everyone everywhere should innovate as much as they can, figure out what works, and iron out the rough edges later. Later, you write that, uh, that we are living in a blindly optimistic age. I'd rather see a lot of pessimism about AI. A very high percentage of people want an AI pause. People are very down on the concept of t- autonomous driving. They're very worried that these new, new technologies will only make climate change worse. We don't seem techno-optimistic to me, and we certainly don't see it in our media. First of all, let me start out with, why do you think we're techno-optimistic right now, outside of Silicon Valley? <laughs> right. Well, Silicon Valley is a very influential culture, as you know, uh, nationally and internationally. So I think there's a there's a there's a deep running uh, techno optimistic trend, Jim. But I also think you put your finger on something uh, very important, which is since we finished the book and, and we turn in the final final version in November, I think the advance of the chat GPT and, and some of our increased awareness that this is not science fiction, this is actual, this is real. And the people who are um, developing this stuff have no idea how it works, for example. I think I wouldn't call it pessimism, but I think there's a, there's a moment of hesitation and concern. So good. Let's have the discussion now about what we're inventing and why, and, and, and could we put it on a better path? When I think about the past periods where it seemed like there was a lot of tech progress that was reflected in our economic statistics, whether it's productivity growth or economic growth more broadly, that those were also periods where we saw very rapid wage growth and people rem- people think very fondly about I would love to have a repeat of 1995, you know, through through 2000. Uh, if we had technologies that could manage that kind of impact on the economy, what would be the downside? It seems like that would be great. Well, I would love a repeat of the Henry Ford experience, actually, Jim. So Henry Ford, as you know, automated the manufacturing of cars. We went from pr- producing tens of thousands of cars in the U.S. to 30 years later producing millions of cars because of, of, of Ford's automation. But at the same time, Ford and all the people around him, a lot of entrepreneurs, of course, working with Ford and, and, and rivals to Ford, they create a lot of new jobs, new tasks. And that's the key balance. When you automate, when you have a big phase of automation, and we did have another one during World War II and after World War II. We also created a lot of new tasks, new jobs. So demand for labor was very strong. And I think that it's that balance we need. And I think 
a lot of the concerns, the justified concerns about, about AI you were mentioning a moment ago, are about uh, losing jobs very quickly and faster than we can create other tasks, jobs, demand for labor in, in other non-automating parts of the economy. Your book is a it's a it's a book of deep economic history. It's a kind of book I absolutely love. Uh, so I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a flavor of the history of of, uh, of what sort of what's sort of interesting in this in this book about those two subjects and how they interact. Right. So we try to go back as far as possible in 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 economic and human history, recorded history, to understand technological transformations, big ones. And it turns out you can go back about a thousand years with quite reliable information. There's there's some things you can say about earlier periods, a little bit more speculative, to, to be honest. But a thousand years is a very interesting time period, Jim, because as you know, that's pretty much the rise of Europe time frame, right? A thousand years ago, Europe was a you know a nothing place on the edge of a not very important part of a one continent. And 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 there was a, a, a through a series of technological transformations, which took a long time to get going, and that's part of the, the medieval story that we explore, a huge amount of innovativeness in those societies, but it did not translate into shared prosperity. And it was a very stop start. Uh, I'm talking about over the period of centuries. Then eventually we get this industrial revolution, which is initially in, in Britain, in England, but it's also, it's it shared fairly quickly around Northwest Europe. So individual entrepreneurship, private capital, private ownership markets as, as a dominating uh, part of, of how you organize that, that economy. And eventually, not immediately, but eventually that becomes the basis for shared prosperity. And of course that becomes the, the basis for American society and the Americans by 1850s to 1880s, depending how you want to cut it, have actually figured out industrial technology and, and, and boosted the demand for labor more than the Europeans ever imagined. So then the Americans are, are in the lead. And we had a very good 20th century combining private capital, private uh, innovation with some, um, I, I would say, selective public interventions where a private initiative didn't work. And this actually carried a lot of countries, including countries in that European tradition through to around 1980. Since 1980, it's become much more bumpy and, and we've had a widening of income inequality and a, and a more of a uh, more much more questioning of the economic and, and political model. Just just going back into the, to the history, oftentimes people treat the period before um, you know the, the the steam engine and the uh, and the loom as periods of of there were, that there was no innovation, but but there was. It just it, it didn't have the impact, and it wasn't sustained. But we we were doing things as a society before the industrial revolution. There was progress. Well, there was technological progress, technological change, absolutely. Compass, the printing press, gunpowder. These are advances. Right. So the, uh, the Europeans, of course, were sort of the magpies of the world at that point. So a lot of those innovations began in China. Some of them began in the Arab world. But the Europeans got their hands on them, used them sometimes for military purposes. They figured out civilian uses as well. But they were very innovative. But what didn't happen, and so some people got rich in those societies, but only a very few people, mostly the, the kings and their hangers-on and, and the church. Broad share prosperity did not come through because it was mostly forced labor. Uh, people did not own their labor. You didn't have, I mean, there was some private property, but there wasn't individual rights of the kind that, you know, we, we regard as absolutely central to prosperity 
in the United States because they are central to prosperity and because they're in the Constitution for a reason, because it was coming out of feudalism and the abolition of, and, and, and the, the remains of that feudal system that, the, that, that our uh, ancestors in the United States were escaping from. So they said, you know what, let's enumerate those rights and make sure we don't lose them. That's coming out of um, you know 800 years of hard learned history, I would say, at that point. And, and that's one reason why. Not, not, at, not at the moment of independence, but within 50 to 70 years, the American economy was really clicking and, and innovating and, and breaking through on multiple technologies and, and sharing prosperity in, in a way that nobody had ever seen before in the world. Before that period in the 1800, the problem was not the occasional good idea um, that changed something or made somebody rich. It was sort of having sustained uh, progress, sustained prosperity that eventually spread out wide among the people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was a question of who benefited and who was empowered and who could go and invent the next things. So Joel McCurr, who's an economic historian, as you know, at Northwestern, one of our favorite authors, has written about the sort of revolution of tinkerers. And, and that's actually my family history. My family, as far back as we can go, was carpenters out of Chesterfield in the north of England. And, and they made screws for 100 years, uh, starting in the mid 19th century in Sheffield. And so this was very they would employ a couple of people at any one time, maybe no more than eight, maybe as few as two. And they would make they they probably initially polished um, blades of knives and eventually ended up making specialized screws. So this kind of but very, very small scale. There was not a lot of formal education uh, in the family uh, or among the workforce, but it was all kind of uh, relationships with other manufacturers. It was being plugged into that community. It, it was, you know, Alfred Marshall talked about the, these clusters and, and, and cities uh, of, of regional entrepreneurship. And, and that, that's exactly where, where I'm from. So, yes, I think that that was a that's a really key breakthrough was having the institutions, the politics and the social pressure that could sustain that kind of economic uh, initiative. What, so what were sort of in the you know late, uh, I guess, the middle industrial revolution, late 1800s, what what are sort of the, the changes that we saw that sort of made sure that the gains from this uh, economic progress were widely shared? Well, if we're talking about the United States, of course, the key moment is the mechanization of agriculture, particularly across the, the West. So people would left their farms um, in, in, you know, in Nebraska or somewhere and moved to uh, Chicago to work for McCormick, making the reapers that allowed more people to leave their farms. So you needed a couple of things in that. One was, of course, uh, better um, sanitation and social and, and, and basic infrastructure in the big cities. Chicago grew from, from nothing to be one of the largest cities in the world in a period of about a decade, decade and a half. That requires infrastructure that comes from local government. And then there's the key piece that, Jim, which is education. So people, there was a so-called what's known as a high school movement. Again, very local. Uh, I don't think the national government knew much about it until it was upon them. Um, pushing to educate more people in, in basic literacy and numeracy and to be better workers. At the same time as we did have from the national government, of course, particularly in the, in, in the context of the, the Civil War, the land-grant universities, of which MIT is very proudly one, of, uh, by the way, one of the only two that became private for various reasons. But we were initially founded to support manufacturing, the manufacturing arts in Massachusetts. That was a state initiative, but it was made possible by a funding arrangement, a land swap, actually, uh, with the federal government. The the kind of interventions which you've already mentioned, you know, education uh, and infrastructure, these seem like, you know, very sort of non-controversial public goods kinds of things. So how do those kinds of interventions translate into 2020, into into the 2020s and 2030s in advanced countries, including the United States. Do we have to need to do something different than those? 
Well, I think we should do those, particularly education, better and more and, and, and update it really quickly. So that I think people are going to agree on that in principle. There may be argument about how, how, how exactly you do that. Yeah, I do think there's three things, Jim, that should be on the table for uh, potential uh, serious discussion and, and even potential bipartisan agreement. The first is what Jaron Lanier calls data dignity, which is basically you and I should own the data that we produce, right? So this is an extension of private property rights from, from a, the right uh, of the political spectrum. On well, the left would probably have other, other terminology for it. But what's basically happening uh, and the value that's being created in these um, large language models is those models are taking data that they find for free or actually it's not really free, but it's not well protected on the internet, digital data. And they're using that to train these very large models. And it's that training process that's generating already and will generate even more huge value and potential monopoly power for incumbents there. So uh, Jerome's point is that's not right. Let's have a proper organization and recognition of property rights and, and, and you can pay for it. And then also gives consumers ability to bargain uh, potentially with these large monopolies to get Developers, some technologies rather than other technologies. The second thing is surveillance. I, I think everyone on the right and the left should be very uncomfortable with where we are on surveillance, Jim, where we've slipped into already on surveillance and also where AI is going to take us. So Shoshana Zuboff has a great book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, on exactly this, going through you know where we are in the workplace and where we are in, in our society. And then, of course, there's China and what they're doing in terms of surveillance, which I'm sure we're not going to do. In fact, I think, Jim, the world, the next division of the world may be between the low surveillance or safeguarded surveillance places, which I hope will include the US, and the high surveillance places, which will be pretty much authoritarian places, I, I, I would suggest. That's, that's a really different approach to the technology of how you interact with workers, citizens, everybody in, in, in all their various roles in, in, in life. Now, the third one, uh, Jim, we, we're probably not going to agree on right away, but I do want just to have some serious discussion about it, which is corporate taxation. So uh, Kim Klausing from UCLA, former senior treasury person, points out that we do have a graduated corporate tax system in the US, but bigger companies pay less, right? So smaller companies, effective tax rate is higher than the, the bigger companies because they, they uh, move their profits around the globe. That's not fair and that's not right. And she proposes that we tax... Um, mega profits above $10 billion, for example, at a higher rate than we tax smaller profits to give the big companies that are very successful and very profitable an incentive to make themselves smaller. So my my goal, or the reason I like Kim's proposal, Jim, is I want competition, not just um, between companies, you know, directly in terms of what they're offering, but also between business models and mental models. And I think what we're getting too much from Microsoft and Google and the others who are likely to become the big players is machine intelligence, as they call it, which basically means replacing people as much as possible. We argue for machine usefulness, which is also, by the way, a strong tradition in computer science. It's not the ascendant uh, tradition or ascendant idea right now, but that is making technology, focusing technology and making humans more effective. Like this Zoom call is making us more effective. We didn't have to get ourselves in the same room. We're able to leverage our time. We're able to organize our lives differently. Find those kinds of opportunities, particularly for lower income workers. We're not getting that right now because we lack competition, I think, in the development of these models, Jim. Too much, there's too much of the, you know, you, you joked at the beginning, the Silicon Valley is the only optimist. Well, maybe that's true, but they're the optimists that matter because they're the ones who control the development of the technology. It's almost all those strings are in their hands right now. And you need to give them an incentive to give up some of that. And I, and I don't think having the government, I'm sure you guys, we can agree on the fact that having the government break things up or the courts is going to be a, a big mess and not where we want to go. Does it suggest caution as far as worrying about corporate size or breaking up these companies that these big advances, which could revolutionize the economy, are coming from the very companies 
that you, that you're worried about and are interested in breaking up. Doesn't it argue that they're kind of doing something right if that's the source of this great innovation, which uh, may be one of the biggest innovations of our life? Yes, potentially. So we're trying to be modest and we're trying to be careful here, Jim. We're saying, look, if you make these really big profits, you pay the higher tax rate, and then you have a conversation with your shareholders about, do we really need to be so big? As you know, when Standard Oil was broken up um, before World War One, it was broken up into 25 or 26 pieces. J.D. Rockefeller became richer, right? That created value for shareholders. More competition was also good, I think we can say, <laughs> safely at this distance, was good for consumers. And so it's Competition for consumers is something I think we should always uh, attempt to pursue. But competition uh, in mental models, competition for ideas, getting more plurality of ideas out there in the tech sphere, I think that's really important, Jim. Because while I I agree this 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 can be, and, and you know we wrote the book in part because we believe it is a very big moment in in, in sort of technological choices that we humans have made and 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 will continue to make. This is a big one. But if it's all in the hands of a few people, we're less likely to get better outcomes than if it's in the hands of hundreds of people or thousands of people. More competition for ideas, more competition to develop ways to make machines and algorithms useful to people. That's our focus. You know, so you had OpenAI, a company which was invested in by Microsoft, and Google was work and Google Alphabet, you know, working on their version. And uh, now I think now you have Facebook and Amazon now going to devote more resources. Now, Elon Musk is talking about creating his own version. I mean, and plus you have a lot of companies taking those models and doing things with them. It seems like there's a lot of sort of things going on and a lot of ferment. It doesn't, to me, seem like this kind of staid uh, business environment where you have one or two companies doing something. It seems like a fairly vibrant innovation ecology right now. Well, of course, if you're right, Jim, then nobody's going to make uh, mega excess profits and then we don't have to worry about the tax rate proposal that, that I made. My proposal or Kim's proposal would have bite only if there are a couple of very big winners that you know make hundreds of billions of dollars. But um, I, I, my, um, I'm not a computer scientist. I'm, right. you know, right. I'm an I'm economist. That it but seems my, like maybe those, they will be, those, those mega profits might be competed away. So I'd be careful fine. about right now sure. breaking up Google into eight yeah. Googlets. Yeah, fine. So I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to break them up. I'm saying give give them a t tax system so they confront that that incentive and they can discuss it with their shoulders. Uh, the the people who follow this closely from my computer science colleagues at MIT, for example, feel that uh, Microsoft and OpenAI are in the lead by some distance. Google, which is working very closely with Anthropic, which broke away from an open OpenAI, are probably a either a close second or a slightly distant second. It's sort of like Manchester City versus the rest of the Premier League right now. Um, but the others you mentioned, Facebook. Amazon are are some years behind, and years are a big deal here. Elon Musk, of course, proposed a pause in AI development, and then then suggested he get to launch his own AI business. I suppose to take advantage of the pause. I don't think there's going to be a pause. That's a little suspicious. <laughs> yeah, there's not going to be a pause, and and there's not going to be a pause in part because we know that China is developing AI capabilities. And while I am um, not arguing for confrontation with China over this or, or or other things necessarily, we do have to be cognizant that there's a major national security dimension to this technology, and it is not in the interest of the United States to fall behind anyone. Uh, and I'm sure the Chinese are having the same discussion. So that's going to keep us going pretty much full speed. And and I think it's also the case that you know many corporate executives can see this is a potential winner take all. Oh, and on the applications, the the thinking there is that we're going to be talking very soon about a sort of a vertical or a supply chain where you have these fundamental large language models, like the, the GPT type, at the bottom, and then people can build applications on top of them, uh, which would make a lot of sense, right? So you can focus on healthcare, you can focus on finance, but you'll be using 
one or two or in, choosing between right now looks like one or two um, of the large language models, which does suggest really big um, upstream profits for the, for those fundamental suppliers, just like how Microsoft made, has been making money um, since the mid 1980s, really. With an important technology, which will evolve in directions we can't predict, can we really nudge it with a little bit of tax policy, equalizing capital labor rates? Can we really nudge it in the kind of direction that we might want? If it's if if uh, generative AI or machine learning more broadly is is as significant as some people say, including folks at MIT and Stanford. I just wonder if we're really operating at the margins here and that the technology is kind of kind of be what the technology is. And maybe we should be, you know, make sure we can retrain people and we can change education. And maybe we need to, you know, worry a bit about, you know, taxing this profit away if you're worried about corporate power. But as far as how the technology interacts with the workplace and the tasks people do, can we really influence it that much? Well, look, I think that's the big question of the day, Jim. Absolutely. And we so th this is a book, not a policy memo, because we feel that the, the bigger issue is to have the discussion, make to, to confront the question as you pose it and to discuss, OK, what do we as a society want? How do we develop the technology that, that we need? Are we solving the problems that we really want to solve? Now, historically, of course, we didn't have many of those conversations, but we weren't as rich then as we are now. And we weren't as aware, hopefully, of, of our hopefully we're more aware of our history now and more aware of the impact of these choice points. And so it's, it's exactly to have that discussion and to say, OK, if this is as big as people say, how are we going to move it in various directions? I, I like, as you know, to propose specific policy, because I, I do think particularly in Washington, if it's the specifics that people want to see, OK, what, what, is, what do we mean by surveillance? What do we mean by safeguards over surveillance? How could you operationalize protections against excessive surveillance by, by whom? By employers, by the police, by um, companies uh, that, that from whom you buy stuff, from your local government? That conversation still needs to be had. And it's a very big, broad conversation. So let's have it quickly because the technology is moving very quickly. What does sort of more recent history of concerns about technology what lessons do we should we draw i think of i think of nuclear technology which there were lots of concerns and we passed lots of rules and we 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 basically paused that technology you know and now we're sitting here in the you know in the 2020s uh worried about climate change and that to me is a more is a recent powerful example of the dangers of trying to slow a technology delay a technology that may involve in ways you don't understand, but also can solve problems that we don't understand. Well, as, as I think you may remember, Jim, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for more science uh, spending and more innovation in some fundamental sense across the whole economy, because I think that generates prosperity and, and jobs. So in my previous book, Jumpstarting America, we went through this, the nuclear history, as, as you point out, uh, or as, as you flag. And I think the key thing there is at the beginning of that industry, right after World War II, uh, there was over optimism on the part of the engineers on a part of the so the atomic energy commission chair famously promised free electricity and there was very little discussion about safety and people who uh, raised the issues of safety were kind of shunted to one side with the result that three mile island a little bit and chernobyl a lot was a big shock to public consciousness about the technology so uh, i'm in i'm in favor of more innovation i, I guess i'm wondering we've overlearned that lesson you know yes we may yes i think i I think that's quite. I think that's quite possibly right. And I, we're not calling for an end to innovation on AI just because you know um, somebody made a movie in which AI takes over the world. Not at all. What we're saying is, 
there's choices and you can either go more towards replacing people that's automation and more towards task new task creation that's machine usefulness and that's not a new thing that's a very old thousand year or maybe longer sort of tension we've had in in the history of, of, of innovations and how we manage them and we have an opportunity now because we're a more conscious aware and, and richer society to try and pull ourselves through various means and it might not be tax policy i'll grant you that but through various means towards what we want and I think what we want is more good jobs. Oh, we always want more good jobs, Jim. And we always want to produce more useful things. We don't want just to replace people with the sake of replacing them. Uh, since you brought it up, I'm going to I'm going to take the opportunity to ask you a, a final question about some of your other work and trying to create technology hubs uh, across America. It seems like those ideas have sort of, uh, to some degree, have, have made their way into policy uh, during the Biden administration. What do you think of its efforts on trying to spend more on R&D and trying to like spread uh, spread that spending across America and trying to make sure it's not just Austin and Boston and New York and San Francisco and LA as areas of great innovation. Look, uh, the, in the Chips and Science Act, there's two parts, chips and science. So the part that we are really advocating for is the science part. And it's exactly what you said, Jim, which is you spend more on science, spread around the country. There's a lot of people in this country who are innovative, want to be innovative. There's, there's some really good um, resources, private sector, but also public sector, uh, public sector universities, for example, in, in, in almost every state um, where you can have more innovation in, in some basic knowledge creation sense. And that can become commercialized. That can become private initiative that can generate jobs. I mean, that's that's what we're supporting. And I think the Science Act absolutely did internalize that, in part because people learned some hard lessons um, during COVID, for example. The CHIPS Act is 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 not uh, what we were advocating for. And that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out, Jim. That's more, I would say, conventional, somewhat old-fashioned industrial policy. Pick a sector, bank a sector, invest in a sector from the public sector perspective. Now, CHIPS are, of course, really important sector. And the, the discussion of AI, you know, illustrates uh, this or, or is absolutely in part about that. And of course, we're also worried in part because of COVID, but also because of the rise of China about the security of supply chains, including chips that are produced in, let's say, parts of Asia. So I think there are some grounds for that. Uh, there's also some issues, you know, how much does it cost to build a state-of-the-art fab and operate it in the US versus Taiwan or South Korea or even China, for that matter. The, those issues need to be confronted and measured. And, and I, I think it's good that we're having a go uh, honestly, Jim, I'm a big believer in more science, more science spending, more responsible uh, deployment of it and more uh, more discussion of how to do that. Uh, the CHIPS industrial policy, we'll, we'll see. I, I hope something like this works. It would be quite interesting to pursue further. But we have had some bumps in those roads before, right? Simon, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Fantastic as always. My pleasure. Great talking to you. <laughs>